0: The following content has been provided by RWth Aachen University So the iOS SDK um, has a, a list of public frameworks that are available to the developer, and um, that basically assumes that there's also a private API, and that is what the one that is not available to under developers, but that is basically internally um, accessible by people from Apple. That's different from Android, for example. So in Android, developers and um, and Google developers, basically, they have the, the same API. Apple has some, some more um, API internally. Um, you are actually not allowed to, or you, you cannot actually um, access all the phone's functionality, and that is, first of all, Um, to ensure that the user experience is consistent. Um, So, for example, you cannot tweak, like, the Springboard application. Uh, The Springboard application is the one where you see the doc and basically all the icons of your different applications that you have installed. Um, It's also to avoid harmful behavior. Um, And um, that, of course, limits um, the possibilities for exciting apps. And that is why jailbreaking your iPhone is somehow popular because then you can have applications um, that, for example, hook into the operating system um, or into the Windows system and provide you with a different look and feel um, like uh, having displayed widgets on the lock screen, which is coming now with with iOS 10, but so far that's something that people on Android devices see and they would like to have this on their iPhone as well. That's not possible. So then you can jailbreak your iPhone and then you can do things that Apple does not want you to do, actually. Um, Because once for um, the user, uh, for improved usability. And second thing is um, also um, because of the limited power that you have available. Uh, If you run additional stuff in the background, if you hook into the system, uh, you're going to drain your battery uh, much more. Here are some examples of um, the different frameworks that are available. Um, they typically um, come with the kit extension. Uh, so for example, there's MapKit, when you need um, to work with map data, for example. Um, so to display a map, to position a, a POI dot, for example, um, and, and stuff like this. Um, there's also app extensions, which is uh, kind of new, I think, since last or the or year or the year before where now apps can talk to each other much easier by providing an extension uh, so for example you can say okay i have my chat application and uh, i wanna move this text from my conversation to another application and you can share that and then you use an app extension to move that over to a different app um, Touch ID, for example. Um, so you can use Touch ID, for example, to secure data. Uh, let's say you're writing an application for your banking data and um, yeah, it's, it's always, like, annoying to type in the password for your bank account. Then you can alternatively use, for example, Touch ID to unlock your application for security. Um, passbook, for example, that is for when you buy tickets, for example, they are stored. in in, uh, in one application, um, typically um, pimped up with a QR code, um, so that you can basically um, walk around with a digital ticket. Uh, WatchKit, for example, that is used to write your applications for the watch. So what you typically do is you create an iOS application, and then you add an extension, a WatchKit extension. And a a watch application typically has a root iOS application, and then it has this watch extension, so they come uh, together. Um, yeah, what else? motion that is used, for example, for reading data from the accelerometer um, so that you get useful data from there and other stuff. So I think one of the new ones is uh, from this year is SiriKit, for example, where you can use Siri, which is the um, smart assistant uh, that you can talk to like Cortana and, and Google Now um, to get information. Um, to you and uh, you can now write your own application, let's say your chat application, and you can allow Siri then to write a message in your chat application, for example, directly. So uh, multi-touch handling, um, that is uh, one very important thing, of course, in, um, in iOS because that is the way how users typically communicate their input, besides from using the accelerometer or microphone, for example, for um, input um what you typically do is you track a set of touches that you get and you can have up to five touches on the iphone 10 touches on the ipad um that difference is there because when i put like my entire hand on the iphone almost the entire screen estate is already um covered on the ipad i have more space and uh yeah typically i have just 10 fingers available so no need for more um so here are the, um, the typical methods that you just override in your UI view to um, process the touch events. So we have a touches began, and you can think of these as a state machine basically. So when a touch begins, it's basically recognized on your touch screen. And as I said, it's a set of touches because we can, for example, have up to five touches um, on our iOS device. And every touch then, or every um, call here, is, is uh, comes with a UI event similar to what you know from uh, processing events in um, uh, on on OS 10. Um, touches moved is basically the next state. So when you um, have a touch on, you um, detected on your uh, touch screen. It can move as long as the finger stays in contact with the screen. So it's basically that uh, single touch point is tracked. Um, or uh, multiple uh, touches that you have here. Um, touches ended is basically when you lift off your finger. And then there's also touches canceled. Um, who knows what that is or how that is um, evoked, basically? Yeah. I think when you, for example, touch a button and then move your finger outside the button and then remove your finger. So For example. Cancel the action. Yeah. Similar to what you have with mouse interaction, you typically... Uh, If you recall, when you click down on a button, the event is not fired yet, but on the release it's typically fired. But when you move your mouse out of the button and then release, the event is not fired. And here it's similar, uh, as you said, moving out of a button or even moving beyond the screen, what can be sensed, then um, the touch is canceled. And the touch event should not be, um, or the event should, or the action should not be called. Um, Now with the uh, 3D touch, you can also uh, read up on the force value for a touch. So it's the the force property. Uh, And you can also read on the maximum possible force. Um, So typically we can have two differences here. Um, If you have an iOS device where you have force applied by your finger or if you take an iPad where you use the pencil, because that one can also sense pressure, Uh, this has more pressure uh, states uh, compared to um, a finger. Um, or a touch pressure, basically. Then gesture recognition. um, In the beginning, uh, so before iPhone OS 3, you actually had to write your own gesture recognitions. um, And then um, Apple introduced the the UI gesture recognizer that helps you to um, detect certain gestures. So gestures that fall into certain patterns, like we've discussed before, uh, pinching for zoom, for example, swiping, rotating, a long press, and stuff like this. So you don't need to deal with the recognition of these gestures. Um, As they they are um, recognized, um, you can then react to them. Uh, But you can also write your own uh, recognizer if you want to come up with a crazy new gesture. That probably only makes sense in these um, more immersive applications, where it can be fun, actually, to have different gestures to use. But in standard user interfaces, uh, you should probably uh, stick to these more common agreed-on gestures. Uh, let's talk a little bit about multitasking in iOS. And uh, multitasking is a little bit different from what you know from your um, desktop experience because, as I said, we have a limited power on our mobile device. Um, the battery power is limited and stuff like this. So we need to be a little bit more careful with our resources and wasting resources. So this is what the um, the typical um, state charts... Uh, state chart looks like for an application, so it can have different states. Uh, We can have an application in the foreground, in the background, and um, so by default um, your application is not running uh, until you tap on it on the springboard application and then it's moved to the foreground. Uh, So when the application is visible to the user, the user can interact with it. Um, It is active, Um, but inactive basically means that the application is running in the foreground um, but it is not receiving um, events, but it might um, execute some, some code. But typically, we have a transitional state here, so it moves from inactive to active. So it might be, for example, some preparation work that you need to do. Um, what else? So we can have an application that can run in the background. Um, In the background, an application is typically executing some some code, uh, and applications typically also remain in that state just briefly. However, you can request extra execution time. So, for example, let's say you need to find out um, the current location of a user. Then you can request for certain updates um, about the user's position. Um, One example is I'm using uh, the Philips Hue light system, for example. And it uses geofencing for, for example, when I'm leaving my house, turn all the lights off. When I'm coming back, um, turn on the light in the hallway, for example. So it needs to somehow track my location permanently. So that runs in the background. And uh, in order to not waste a lot of power, because um, um, pulling the, the GPS sensor frequently, that is really power in, in, intensive, um, what it does is it only notifies, for example, on significant changes. So, for example, if you are uh, moving um, far, like from, from A to B, a huge distance has been bridged, for example. Um, yeah, or audio, or, for example, is another example for a background task. Yeah. So, playback of Apple music, for example, while you're still using a different application, then the music is played back in, in the background. Um, Then an app can be, before it is not running anymore, it is suspended, and um, that means the app is in the background, but it is not executing any code. So um, this is basically um, still in memory, and let's say you are switching between different applications frequently. Then it makes sense that the application is still kept in memory for bringing it faster back to the user. It's basically cached. Um, But at this state, when the application is suspended, it can be that at any time the operating system decides to purge that um, process and it will just kill it. And that can um, happen, for example, if your device runs out of memory, for example. Then it will automatically kill that. You can reopen the app at a later time, but then you will see it takes significantly longer, especially on older devices, um, to, to run up that application again. So, and uh, we can also have a transition here from background to inactive and then to active again. So that's also possible. Um, but typically we have basically our application not running. We go into the foreground mode by first passing through the inactive state and then through the active state. And um, then um, the user can also terminate the application. Uh, so it basically goes into the suspended mode. And then um, the system might decide that it's not running anymore. and. Um, purchase the subspe- uh, suspended app. Um, what else do we have here? So um, yeah, as I said, the OS decides when the app is actually terminated. That is depending on the memory footprint. So if we run out of memory, um, and there are typically hook-ins in your application. Uh, you can receive notifications like running out of memory, and then you can react to this in your application quickly. Um, for example, um, saving some additional data, for example. Um, Yeah, we've already talked about the different um, screen sizes that were introduced with the different devices that Apple had added over the years. And um, having to deal with designing an interface that is responsive to the different layouts is kind of, like, difficult. Uh, That is why Apple introduced um, auto layout and um, size classes. So with size classes, you're not really designing your interface for a particular aspect ratio or for a particular screen size. It's rather a representative screen size. It's just a square. And use auto layout not to position a widget absolutely, but you basically describe the relation between widgets. Uh, Let's say um, I have my container here, which is um, what my screen basically can display. Uh, and I have two buttons here. Let's say this one and this one here. Um, And um, I want them to be positioned always at the center, for example, independent of whether my screen is like this here. They should be at the center or whether it's even bigger. Then you can, for example, specify that um, you want to have um, a certain alignment to the left and right. So this should always be um, centered, so always have the same, um, the same distance. Uh, you can specify, for example, between those two buttons, there should always be a minimum distance, for example. And then um, based on when you change your screen size, everything um, gets updated according to these layout constraints or regulations. Of course, you have to test this a lot with the different screen sizes because um, using Auto Layout is kind of tricky and difficult. And there was actually a session on WWDC, I think last year ago or the year before, and that session was called Mysteries of Auto Layout. I think that tells it quite well because sometimes it's not really obvious um, what's going on there. So you have to test it a lot. Um, Also, what has... um, A little bit changed since the introduction of the iPad, Um, you often find applications that run both on the iPad and on your iPhone. And as I said, uh, we have different screen sizes here and it might make sense to um, display a different user interface on the bigger screen compared to the user interface on the smaller screen. Still, what you want to do is you want to provide the user with the same application because he might have both devices. So, and he will he just wants to buy the app once, so he downloads the app from the app store and then he can install it on both devices. But uh, for that, since we have uh, different user interfaces, um, we need to provide these user interfaces in that one app bundle for both devices or. Since you don't know what kind of devices that user is going to use, basically for all devices that Apple has out there and they're still supported under that um, current iOS version. Um, and this is why these app bundles are called FedBinary, because they try to serve to, um, to, to have like um, visualization and resources for all the different platforms and devices there. Um, so we have basically different zip files. We zip files are the, the layout, the user interface files, storyboard and resources that are then packed into the FED binary. One big issue with that is, of course, if I have a device with limited memory, like storage memory, I have resources stored on my device in my application that I'm never going to use. Yeah? So it's wasting a lot of um, my, um, my memory. That is why we're now moving over to app thinning where basically, I can, by downloading the application, um, the operating system basically only pulls those resources that are really useful or that can be executed on this device, so let's say on the iPhone. And if you download the application on your iPad, it takes all the resources that are just used for the iPad and not for the iPhone. And another trend um, that is probably coming up is on-demand resources. Um, That's something that we will see rather in TVOS right now, but it's also uh, possible to use that in, um, in iOS, where you basically uh, only download a part of your application, and all resources that might be important at a later time, they are downloaded on demand, so basically afterwards. One example is if you implement a game, uh, a level-based game, where you basically have a very linear uh, gameplay, uh, level 1, level 2, level 3, and a tutorial maybe, Um, To save space, what you do is when you download the app, you provide just um, the basics of your application or of your game and the tutorial level, and maybe level 1. But all the other levels up to level 10, they are not on your device. And when the user plays the first level, for example, you probably know that, well, he has passed the tutorial. We don't need the tutorial anymore. You're going to delete the the resources for the tutorial. But at the same time, you're downloading already level number 2 and maybe level number 3, because you know that the next step where the user will go to is uh, level 2 and level 3. So you basically adapt um, the resources, downloading the resources, based on the current state of the user in this application. Um, Yeah, here's one more um, visualization of auto layout. Um, Basically what you've already seen here, you can basically see that we have different views here laid out in our... um, in our screen or in in, in our zip file. And uh, you can see that there are these spacers here or basically these anchors that basically say, OK, this here should should stretch, for example, according to the width um, of your screen. And um, the auto layout basically tries to fulfill all set of equations um, of the user interface uh, when the um, user interface appears. And of course, there can be some at some point conflicts between those uh, policies that you defined here in auto layout, uh, and then uh, you will get a warning that they need to be resolved, um, or you will see very weird behavior um, that can also take into account localization issues and for example, also um, left um, aligned text fields um, that become right aligned when you for example switch um, your system language to Arabic in your Um, in your iPhone. Okay, um, that wraps up everything um, basically important on developing um, for mobile platforms on, on iPhone. This content was provided by RWTH Aachen University.